Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning as we are in week one of a new series where we have entitled Thy Will Be Done. If you are new with us, we are honored and excited to have you. What a blessing it is for you to worship with us this morning. If there is anything that we can do or answer any questions that you may have about the work that God's doing here at the church, please stop by the Connection Center or the Welcome Desk in the lobby. We would love to be able to answer and share that with you. Uh, before we get into our series, a uh, couple of quick things for us to know. Uh, first of all, our annual report is published today. We do uh, a report at the end of each year, and it's basically a, a really neat way to show a snapshot of all the different ministries that, that have happened, all the things that have happened throughout the year. And so if you're interested in picking up one of those, you can go online or you can text that number. If you have any questions about the annual report, again, stop by the connection. Center, but it is available for you uh, to pick up and to see today uh, how last year went for us. And then, if you're again, if you're new with us, again, we're honored. Uh, there is a little for more card in the seat in front of you. If you want to know more about the opportunities and the events that are happening here, if you scan that QR code, uh, it will take you to a little page that will show you more of that. If you need help with scanning the QR code, stop by the Connection Center. We would be glad to help you. That helps everybody stay in the know. All right, thy will be done. Two places we read thy will be done. One, in the model prayer that Jesus teaches. You may know that as the Lord's Prayer. He teaches it in Matthew 6. And then the other place we find in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And if you have a Bible, and if you'd like to join me in Matthew 26, we'll be in the book of Matthew today, not in Matthew 26 as our focal text, but we'll look at this in the Garden. Matthew 26 as we begin to prepare our hearts, our minds for Good Friday and Easter, which will be here really soon, we see Jesus in the garden, and he models for us what we would call a surrendered obedience as he spoke the words, not my will, but thy will be done. So Jesus didn't just teach us those words in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. He used them himself in his own life, in a real-life situation. So Jesus is in the garden. He's about to face death on the cross for our sins. And if we look at verse 36, it says he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And in verse 37, it says he began to be grieved and distressed. And then a couple of verses later, in verse 39, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless... Not as I will, but as you will. And then a couple verses later in verse 42, he prayed again, your will be done. And then in verse 44, it says that he, he prayed again, saying the same words again. So three times Jesus spoke, your will be done, thy will be done. Do you see Jesus, he, he felt the awful burden of sin and his, his holiness, the holy soul was repelled by it. But in prayer, he didn't resist the will of the Father, but he was determined. He had to finish the work, the missional work that he came 
to do, and that was to, to provide salvation for us as he gave his life for us on the cross, the bride of victory for us as he rose from the grave in the resurrection. And so that was his mission for us. And so he had determined, he could say in prayer, he humbly surrendered to the will of the Father as he prayed, as he modeled for us that prayer, your will be done. Not as my will, but your will be done. He did it three different times to repeat and to emphasize that for us. We, we see this as a surrendered obedience, which is a characteristic that we are to model as Jesus' disciples. And so this series, Thy Will Be Done, will look at the characteristics, a few characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus that lives out Thy Will Be Done in my life and through my life. And so in order to begin with understanding what that is, we have to understand when Christ calls us, he calls us fully. He doesn't call us in part or partially, he calls us fully. So we go back in today's time to the beginning. In our time together, we'll look at the beginning, our call to follow Jesus so that, again, thy will be done in my life and through my life. That's what we're going to look at, the Characteristics, a few characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus. Now, what I say next might shock you. Jesus never called people to become Christians. He never called people to be religious. When we read our Bible, Jesus called people to be disciples, Matthew 4, and that's where we're going to spend our time. When we read our Bible, Jesus called his disciples to make disciples, Matthew 28. Now, to be a Christian, you must be a disciple. If you're not a disciple, then it doesn't really make sense to call yourself a Christian. And we'll see this within the scripture. Now, to define disciple, which the reason we need to define it is because it's not really a term used that much. We use the, the word discipleship, but disciple is not really used. But it was used a lot in the first century. Disciple is defined as pupil or student or apprentice to the master. And again, in the first century is a very common term. Uh, a teenage boy would become a disciple of a rabbi or a teacher. The student would follow the teacher, the rabbi, around. At times, he may even live at the rabbi's house. He, he, would, he would eat with him. He would follow him around. He would watch he would observe, and the idea was to live with his rabbi in order to live like his rabbi. Now, does that sound familiar? When we think about Jesus' 12, his 12 disciples, that's what they did for the three years of ministry on earth with Jesus when they were following him around. They were, they were eating with Jesus. They were observing. They were watching all of those things. And in time and over time, we begin, the, the, the disciple would begin to talk and think and act like his rabbi, his teacher. And when you met this young disciple, say now 5, 10, 15 years later in his life, you would know who his rabbi was, who he had been following. Now the truth is, all of us are somebody's disciple. The question is, who's your teacher? When Jesus calls people to follow him, to be his disciples, he's calling us you could say to live with him through scripture and prayer in order that we may live like him. And then he gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit, which we just finished the series on. The advocate, the helper, right? The Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us who then escalates that transformation from the inside out 
so that we may, as he leads, fulfill his will to be done. So the best place to start as we think about the characteristics of a disciple following Jesus is in the calling of his first disciples, Matthew 4. So in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22, we see Jesus as he begins his ministry. Matthew records for us the calling of the first disciples. Starting in verse 18, Matthew writes, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Verse 19, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, verse 22, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I want to share three truths about our call to follow Jesus. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. Here's the first one. Jesus invites us. Verse 19, we see again in our text, and he said to them, follow me. Jesus invites us. Now, now most describe a call in their life. Maybe this is true of you. It's like, well, I kind of grew up in church. You know, I followed my parents there when they kind of made me, or I was involved in youth ministry or student ministry at different parts of my life, or, or there was a moment in my life where something happened and I was mad at God, and, and, and then in that moment of being mad at God, God revealed himself in, in that moment, or, or a friend of mine or a family member shared the gospel, and through all of that, I invited Jesus into my heart. Maybe that's your story. But we see here in text that the only way to have Jesus is to respond, not invite. He does the inviting, we respond. Jesus invites us. Now, the Bible would teach us that we have a precondition before we ever meet Jesus. And that precondition is, is this. In Ephesians 2... Paul writes that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And in Philippians 3, he says we are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Scripture would teach us that our eyes have been blinded to spiritual truth so that we cannot understand in our minds. That we are rebels, maybe with, again, with our fists raised high at God. That we are unable to do anything for our own salvation, slaves to sin, under the dominion of sin as master. That is a picture of us before Christ as the Bible would describe us. None of us then could help save ourselves. None of us are strong enough to crawl out of that pit of despair, smart enough to understand spiritual truths, resolved enough to clean ourselves up from the dirtiness and the mire of sin, passionate enough to want Jesus more than anything or anyone else on earth. None of us had the ability and the drive to invite Jesus. Jesus invites us because he took the first steps. What we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus left the glory of heaven and he came and he put on flesh. And he lived the perfect life that we, we now understand and we can see clearly as we are honest with ourselves, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, that I'm not perfect. And when we claim perfection, they put us in a padded room. None of us are perfect. Jesus took the first step. That's why in Romans 5, verse 8, Paul writes to us, but God shows his love for us in that while, while 
We were still sinners, still sinners. Not, not God shows his love for us when we get it all together. When we make a decision to put ourselves together, have all the answers, figured it out. But no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Jesus invites us. He calls us. Now, here's why that's important, why it's really important that he invites us. First of all, it kills our pride. It destroys our pride, which is the foundational sin that all of us have within our lives, is pride. So that we can't say, look at how I saved myself. So you could say it's humbling, which is the posture of a disciple. It's the posture of Christ. None of us wake up and say, well, I figured it out today and today's the day. I think I'll let Jesus have a look at my life. So it kills pride. That's why it's important. We need that work. Secondly, it produces security. If, my, if the reality of my salvation, my eternity... And spiritual life is based on my first decision. I am in a lot of trouble because then I'm in charge of handling the scales of that. But the thought that Jesus sees me as I am, remember Romans 5, 8, we just read that? And he still says, I choose you. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. So it produces security. I'm secure in what Christ has done for me, and he calls me to him. He invites me. And then thirdly, it confirms the promises. So in Jesus' calling and inviting us to come is the echo of God's promise to save us and redeem us and rescue us, which we see throughout Scripture. So if we know that is true, that he, that he is fulfilling that promise, and God is able to make promises and fulfill them, then all the promises that come after that, that he's given to us, and one that we talk about all the time, the promise that Jesus will return and set up his kingdom forever, and all the pain and all the crying and all the suffering will be gone, then it confirms the promises that he's given to us. Listen, I'd rather have Jesus call me than me call him. Think about that. To know that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the maker and creator of all things, you and I and all things, chooses and calls me to be his. It's infinitely more powerful than me calling him. Because it's secure in him. So the first thing is he invites us. But number two, he doesn't just invite us. He invites us to a radical reorientation. A radical reorientation. Jesus never called us to be an associate of his. He called us to be his disciples, that we might live with him so we might live like him. In verse 19, if we go back to our text, these, these guys were fishermen. They were fishermen. And Jesus said to them in verse 19, he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They were fishers. They were fishermen. They were comfortable. They understood that. That was their world. This is what they knew. They were comfortable being fishermen. Jesus says, I'm going to make you men fishers. I'm going to reorient your life as you follow me. You're going to follow with my values and my priorities. You're going to be passionate for the things I'm passionate about. I'm going to take your life and I'm going to turn it upside down in the greatest way possible where you'll understand that the first 
To be first, you must be last. It's better to give than receive. To find your life, you must lose your life. I'm going to completely reorient your life to me. And that's not an importing of our old lives into a new one with Jesus on occasion. It's a transformation that is radical. See, being a disciple of Jesus is setting a new priority. Jesus calls us to be utterly focused on him. You can see that throughout the Gospels. There are multiple places where Jesus is calling us to to pick up our cross and follow him, to, to leave the plow and to follow him. All those things, you can read about how Jesus, he doesn't mince words. He, he says, I need to be first. And when you place me first and you reorient your life with me as you set a new priority, everything else will fall into place. He must come first. Being a disciple is finding that new identity. An old way of having an identity has to end is what he says. As Jesus brings us a new identity and in the new identity we have a true self. Why? Because now the creator that we're in in, in relationship with who made us can actually reveal to us who we are. Instead of the world telling us or the sin of our flesh telling us, the identity is not built then on gaining things, but it's built on building our lives on Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And this produces stability. It produces security. No longer, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be included. We all want to find value and worth within our lives. And again, if the King of kings and the Lord of lords The creator says to you, you have value and you have worth and you have acceptance, not because of who we are, but because of who he is, which means it's secure in his finished work, not in any work that I may do, which means it may never change. It's fulfilled and promised, right? It's secure. And if he says I have value and he says I have worth and he says I'm accepted, doesn't matter if nobody else does, he has doesn't mean that we don't want to be accepted, but if the acceptance causes us to be compromising in convictions and values and beliefs and faith in Jesus, then I don't want it. I don't need it because I have my acceptance and my value and worth in him who is greater and a supreme treasure. And all of this comes from a radical experience of mercy, a radical experience of grace. And the more we are with him, the more he changes and transforms us as we understand, as we are surrendered to the Holy Spirit every single day. There is no disciple at a distance. Study the life of the disciples in Scripture, and you'll see they were not at a distance. They were up close and personal every day. Distant discipleship is not discipleship. You look at Peter, you look at Andrew, you look at James and John. These guys left nets, they left boats, they left wages, they left comfort, they left family. The point was nothing was stopping or hindering them from following Jesus as he reorients radically their lives around himself. Transforms them. And as they, and as they walk and walked with Jesus, he transformed their speech, he transformed their manners, their service, their sight, their thinking, and it took time, but it happened. The fruit eventually grew. I mean, John went from being the son of thunder to the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think sometimes, though, that's why we prefer Christian over disciple. Cultural Christianity doesn't have life transformation as a key value. 
My old life plus Jesus is the value. This is not the way of a disciple, though. And we see it clearly in our text. Jesus says to be a disciple, you must follow him in the way he defines it, not as we do. And he does that for us in Scripture. So to call myself a disciple, you can see there's more weight there. There's more importance there. A long walk in the same direction with the same Lord. This is a transforming, radical reorientation, long walk home. Not perfection, but over time, our sight and our thoughts and our words and our actions will begin and continue to look like Jesus. That is the trajectory of being a disciple. Day by day, as his will be done in our lives and through our lives. And then thirdly, so Jesus invites us, and he invites us to a radical reorientation of our lives. And then thirdly, our response is surrendered obedience, not just agreement. Surrendered obedience, not just agreement. It's humble obedience. We go back to our text, verses 19 to 22. I'll read this again. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, first word, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, verse 22, what's the first word? Immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. They left and followed him. Now, it is important to note, if you look at the cross-reference of this moment in the other Gospels, you'll note that John talks about that these guys have had an interaction with Jesus prior to this moment and this call. You could say they had a prior connection with no call. Jesus just interacted with them, but now Jesus is not just interacting, he's calling them. There's a connection here where he is inviting them to come. And what do they do? They respond in surrendered obedience. And, and it may just look like obedience immediately, but if you study their lives as they walk, it's, you're going to see it's humble surrender. It's surrendered obedience, just like Jesus modeled for us in the garden. And they didn't just say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, that's a great idea. Hey, that's a great point, man. You're, you got some really good things going on. This is an awesome offer. They didn't say, well, we need to probably sit down and study this or talk it through. Maybe we need to do a little, you know, get together. They didn't just agree and wonder about it. They agreed and took a step saying we're in surrendered, humble obedience. And you notice that they also left one authority in their life. And shifted their authority to Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives. Who was the authority they left? They, Matthew makes it clear. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We talk about this a lot in, in salvation. That, that when, when, you, when the moment of salvation comes, when you respond to the invite, and that moment comes, and you, you repent and you... You ask God for mercy and you believe on, on Christ as the Son of God who put on flesh, who lived the perfect life, who died on the cross and paid, paid the penalty and the payment of sin and went to the grave for three days and resurrected. And in, and in victory, he brings that to us. And then he ascended with the promise of one day coming back. And when, when you acknowledge that and you believe in that and you have faith in that, and you know that you, and you can't get yourself there, what we, we talk about this a lot, that in that moment we're taking ourselves off the throne of our heart and putting Jesus there. This is what's happening here. 
the authority shifts to Christ, Jesus, Lord, Savior. The answer to Jesus is always yes. Always in humble obedience. Even, even if we don't fully understand in the moment. I was reading a story about a, na- a man named Jack who was walking along a cliff and he got a little too close and he, he accidentally fell off the, off the edge of the cliff and as his way down he grabbed this branch and he was hanging on by this branch and he realized that if he, if he lets go he's going to certainly fall to his death because the, the canyon was so deep and so he began yelling for help hoping that someone would hear him as they were passing by and, and he kept saying is there anybody up there and he yelled for a long time and finally he heard Jack can, I, can you hear me? And Jack responds, yes, I can hear you. I'm down here. And he says, I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? And Jack says, yes, but who are you? Like, where are you? And he says, I am the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. And he said, Lord, you mean God? And he said, that's me. He said, God, please help me. I promise, I promise if you get me down from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a really good person. I'll serve you the rest of my life. And, and God said, easy on the promises, Jack. Let's get you off from there. Uh-huh. And then we can talk. He said, I'll do anything. God, just tell me what to do. And he says, okay, Jack, let go of the branch. He said, what? He said, I said, let go of the branch. Just trust me, let go. And there was this long silence. Finally, Jack yelled back, help. Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> now, share that funny story. Have you ever noticed that the enemy and ourselves will bring about a lot of excuses and not saying yes to Jesus? The phrase, no, Lord, is an oxymoron. In my walk with Jesus, the hard part of surrendered obedience is getting to the point of saying yes. Not actually doing what he's asking us to do. Maybe you're here today and God has something in your life that you still have not said yes to. Maybe it's baptism, a first response of obedience. Maybe it's forgiveness. It's time to say yes to forgive and to receive forgiveness. Maybe it's the serving, using our talents and our gifts for his kingdom. Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's a conversation that needs to happen. Maybe it's reconciliation that needs to start. Maybe it's responding to the invitation. Every time we get the privilege of standing up here and sharing the word of God as he works in and through me, I I try to present the invitation that Jesus stands before you in an invitation stance to say, here, I've finished the work. Respond. Come home. Maybe that's it. The invitation is before you. Repentance and faith. Jesus is inviting us not to religion. He's not inviting us to church or sentiment or good intentions. He's inviting us to come home. To come home. And the only way we get there is through him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples would later say in their walk with Jesus, as Jesus asked him, do you want to leave too? And they would look at him and say, where would we go? You are the Christ. We've left everything to follow you. See, Jesus is worthy of that. He's a supreme treasure. And the posture of humble surrender is to be a trait of a disciple on our journey home. When we meet Jesus, 
When we respond to his invitation, everything changes. The late Tim Keller, who just recently passed away, a pastor, author, theologian, he wrote this about the calling to be a disciple. I want to share it as we wrap up. He said, it is a journey. It's narratively brilliant of Luke to note this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets out on a journey towards Jerusalem. It's Jesus' journey of discipleship. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and it's from that moment he begins his journey toward the cross that he begins all his teaching about discipleship. He says all the next nine chapters in the book of Luke all, are all teaching on discipleship as he's going on this journey. He said this is Luke's way of saying that discipleship is a journey. In other words, on one hand, there is a decisiveness. You have to leave. Have you left? To go on the journey means saying I take my hands off my life. To go on the journey means saying I give up my right to self-determination. To go on the journey means saying I will obey you, Lord, and I'll get rid of all the ifs. Not obey you if, but obey, period. He said, I drop my conditions. I drop the ifs. They're gone. Not until you say that you have begun the journey. However, after your decisive beginning, the fact remains that it is a journey. It's a process that takes time. You're not going to have it all together. It's very important to keep that in mind because if you think that discipleship is the way that you're saved, that by being committed and focused and giving Jesus the priority, you're going to please God and that will get you saved, he says you're missing the point. Listen to this last part. He says, look at the order. He doesn't say, if you follow me, I'll go to the cross for you. He says, I'm going to the cross for you, so follow me. You're not saved because you're a disciple. You're a disciple if and only if you understand what he has done to save you. Which was why I began in the garden as we prepare ourselves for that powerful time of celebration. Thy will be done. God's will first importance is that none shall perish that all would respond to the invitation that Jesus presents to be his disciple and to follow him the rest of our days then and only then can thy will be done through us let's pray father God if there are those in this room or online that need to say yes to the invitation to come home. God, I pray that it happens today. God, that you, you would bring them home. That they would see the finished work of Christ. That he paid the debt on the cross that he went to the grave and he rose in victory and he, he invites us into that relationship as we confess sin, as we repent, as we acknowledge him as your son and our savior. God, I pray for those who haven't done that, that today would be the day. And in that moment, may they experience a peace and a showering of your love, your grace, 
a new sight to see that they are now through Christ co-heirs. They are a son or a daughter the king of kings and the Lord of lords. May it happen for your glory, for your praise, for you are worthy that we may collectively say no matter what we praise you. We praise you for your good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.